Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Claire Moon about the basics of aspects in astrology and what they mean and how they're interpreted and other things like that. So, hey, Claire, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, this is your second episode. We did one on transitioning into becoming a professional astrologer a few months ago, I think in June, which I can't believe the summer flew by already that fast. Yeah, I, I blinked. Yeah, exactly. That's 2021 for you, whereas 2020 was just like one long 10-year period. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So today is, what is the date? It's Tuesday, October 5th, 2021, starting at 4.44 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. This is going to be either the 223rd or 24th episode of the show. I'm not quite sure yet. Um, but we're recording this partially for this new intro to astrology course that we're developing, which is like um, the what I'm calling it sort of in working working title is the astrology podcast guide uh, introduction to astrology guide where we're going to use some core episodes of the astrology podcast arranged in a specific order and also with some additional lectures and other bonus material added to it in order to create sort of an intro to astrology course that's tied in with some of the best episodes of the podcast that I've done. And one of the things we realized in putting that together is that I don't have a basic episode on aspects. So that's what we're going to try to cover here today. Mm -hmm. So uh, people can find out more information. I'm going to launch that course this month at courses.theastrologyschool.com or just go to theastrologyschool.com and you'll find the course. All right. So uh, let's talk about aspects. Let's assume that the listener or the person watching this has no background in the aspect doctrine. We're going to build things up from scratch. Um, so, when it comes to learning astrology and it comes to an intro to aspects, usually I teach aspects as the third thing that you learn because the first two things that you need to learn are the planets and what the planets mean. And then you learn the signs of the zodiac and what the 12 signs mean. And then the third thing is the aspect doctrine. And aspects basically represent um, relationships between planets. That's the fundamental thing that aspects do or represent in a chart, I think, right? Yep, exactly. How things talk to each other, how things interact. Yeah. So, how it gives the planets, because up until this point, it's like when you introduce the planets, the planets are just like what they mean in isolation. Or you talk about the signs of the zodiac and what the signs mean, or what planets in signs mean, sort of in isolation. But when you get to aspects, that's when you start talking about how the planets uh, interact with each other in the chart, for better or worse. Exactly. Yep. All right. So aspects is the third thing, and then usually once you learn aspects, you can build on that to learn the fourth part of the system of Western astrology, which is uh, houses. Because the houses basically build on planets, signs, and aspects. And then all of that comes together in the fourth part of the system, which is just the 12 houses and those 12 topics or areas of life, basically. Mm -hmm. So, going into this, the main thing people need to know is primarily just the planets and some of their meanings and the signs of the zodiac and some of their meanings. Exactly. All right. So, let's start jumping into it. Um, the starting point for aspects is that aspects primarily represent distances between planets and how far or uh, far apart the planets are, how close they are to each other, and the notion that different intervals of space 
are going to represent different things, I think is the fundamental starting point. So the most obvious starting point for this and the most obvious aspect, the most basic aspect and probably the first one that was ever developed is what we refer to today as a conjunction, which is when two planets come together in roughly the same spot in the zodiac or roughly the same spot in the sky essentially, right? Mhm. Okay. So the most like obvious version of a conjunction we saw that actually last December, the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn when they came together and conjoined in the sign of Aquarius. And what you saw then, if you went outside at night, is these two little twinkling stars that sort of got closer and closer over each successive night and each week if you went outside each night until eventually they were basically lined up right on top of each other. And it looked like two stars had essentially come together in the night sky. Yeah, that was an amazing demonstration. I was out there very much looking at it all the time, inching closer every night. Took a really long time. Um, well, and also just the moon, you know, conjoining in the evening sky or, you know, whatever sky you can see planets under. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's a picture I found from like a stock photo site, which just shows uh, Jupiter and Saturn, which are just like they looked brighter, and that's that's the the planets, which in Greek originally the word planet means wandering star uh, or or wanderer. So the planets look like little fixed stars, but the difference is that they move over successive periods of time rather than just staying fixed in place. Mm -hmm. All right, let me see if I have other images. So there's one with the moon. I don't know if this is real because the moon looks kind of big in this it looks one. Too big. But yeah, but let's let's imagine idea. for the sake of argument so that mm -hmm. planets can form conjunctions, which is when they're basically at the same spot in the sky, or the moon can form a conjunction with other planets when it occupies the same spot in the sky, and so on and so forth, basically, right? Exactly. So that's what it looks like visually. Uh, there's another illustration of a conjunction. Just Adorable. <laughs> two two planets coming together and holding hands. That's a conjunction. I so, have actually used that terminology to describe it when I'm feeling very euphemistic. <laughs> okay. Um, let me share an image of a chart right now in order to show people what this looks like. Because even though I'm showing it visually using these images of like two planets lining up in the night sky, most of the time when you're actually doing astrology, you're going to be looking at charts and you're going to be taking that three-dimensional image of what you see in the night sky and you uh, translate it into a two-dimensional image, which is a copy of a, an astrological chart or most often what you're looking at is a birth chart. Um, so this is the chart of the moment for right now. And currently, I don't think we have any super close conjunctions by degree, but we do have several different conjunctions by sign. And so that's one distinction that we'll have to talk about here in a little bit, which is the difference between uh, sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects, which can allow for two planets to be in conjunction either when they occupy the same degree of the zodiac or when they occupy the same sign of the zodiac. So in this chart, for example, Saturn is at six degrees of Aquarius, and it's in a sign-based conjunction. It's in the same sign with Jupiter at 22 degrees of Aquarius. 
So they're just occupying the same sign. Therefore, it's a sign-based conjunction. And if you were able to see those two planets at night, which I think you can after sunset nowadays, you would see those two planets um, roughly in the same vicinity of the sky because they're in the same mm -hmm. sign. Mm -hmm. Yep, they've been hanging out for a while. Yeah, but let me animate the chart and see when we can find a day when two planets are conjoining. So um, let's see. If I animate the chart, it looks like there's a triple conjunction of on October 9th, 2021, Mercury, which is retrograde right now, will be at 16 degrees of Libra, and it'll be in the same degree as Mars at 16 Libra. So those two are in a conjunction. And then also the Sun will be at 16 Libra at the same time. So there'll be a conjunction of three planets instead of just two. Um, similarly, the same day, it looks like the Moon will form a conjunction with Venus, where Venus is at two degrees of Sagittarius, and the Moon will catch up to Venus and conjoin Venus also at two degrees of Sagittarius. So that's basically in terms of just technical terms what a conjunction is. It's just two planets occupying either the same degree, if we're talking about a close degree-based conjunction, or alternatively occupying the same sign, if we're talking about sort of a wide sign-based conjunction. Uh, does that make sense? It does, yes. And then just varying intensities, would you say, with that? Or how would you interpret the difference? Or are we going to get to that later? Yeah, so that gets into the subject of the distinction between like sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects, but also this concept that modern astrologers refer to as um, orbs or orbs of influence. And the concept of orbs is one of those murky areas of astrology. There's several different murky areas like that where different astrologers have different um, definitions of what you should use or different ranges. And for orbs, an orb is basically when somebody mentions that it's a range of influence in which they think that the aspect sort of comes into being relevant in some way. So, for example, I think some modern astrologers say that for the sun and the moon, you can have an orb for conjunctions of up to 10 degrees, for example. And if the sun or the moon is conjunct another planet within 10 degrees, then they'll consider that to be within aspect or to be within orb of being relevant and something you should actually take into account as a conjunction. Mm -hmm. um, but other astrologers might either tighten that orb and they say you should only use six degree aspects that are within six degrees on either side, or they'll say you can use much wider orbs of anywhere from, let's say, like 15 degrees on either side. Okay. So the orbs is a little bit tricky because different astrologers will define it in different ways. One of the ways that I've come to work this out for myself in terms of the history of astrology is when I went back and started studying ancient astrology, it, took, it turns out that they took into account both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects that are very close. And I think the main distinction is that an aspect is in effect as soon as two planets move into a sign-based aspect. So for example, with a conjunction, the two planets are aspecting each other as soon as they move into the same sign because the analogy is that it's like two people who are living in the same house. 
And if you're like occupying the same house, even if you're on the living on the other opposite side of that house, you're going to have some awareness of each other and you're going to have some influence on the other person's living situation mm -hmm. just by virtue of occupying the same house. Yep, that makes sense. If if Mars is upstairs, like hanging a picture, banging on the wall with a hammer, like you're going to hear it downstairs. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know there is a difference between like living on the opposite wing of like a mansion versus like let's say you get a little bit closer and you're living in two rooms. It's like a dorm room, and there's two of you living in separate rooms, but they're like right across from each other, or across the hall from each other, or like right next to each other. So yeah, maybe you hear Mars playing loud music at like three o'clock in the morning. It's keeping you up, even though he's not quite living in the same room as you. So that might be an aspect that's a little bit closer um, by degree, like what's in you know ten degrees or something like that. Um, the next range is an aspect that's super close. Let's say within one degree or even within three degrees, that might be like. You know, that planet, those two planets are literally living in the same room and are kind of, you know, bunk mates together or something, living on a, a bunk bed right, right on top of each other. That's a much more intimate and much more intense experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So that's the basic aspect between um, sign based aspects versus degree based aspects. And it's one of the reasons why I think. The concept of orbs is a little bit nebulous and a little bit fluid because I think people sometimes get stuck a little bit too much on this idea that an orb is like this very strict uh, boundary that's very clear and it's always exactly like this number of degrees. When in fact, the aspect is probably in effect as soon as they come into a sign based aspect, but it just gets more intense the closer they are together. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's how I treat it. Okay, cool. So, um, moving on from there, we're using the conjunction as sort of the archetypal aspect, but that applies to all the other aspects that we'll get into later as well. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of the history of aspects, the concept of aspects as we know it today was probably introduced or standardized somewhere around like the first century BCE. Um, during the early Hellenistic tradition. And this was essentially the birth of what we call Hellenistic astrology, where some traditions of astrology from Mesopotamia and from Egypt came together and were mixed with some other currents that were present in, in the Mediterranean at the time. Um, and a number of new concepts were introduced. And the concept of the five aspects of the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition is one of those concepts that was kind of introduced around that time, even if there were some earlier precursors through simple things like you know paying attention to an alignment of two planets, which is essentially a conjunction in the sky. Mm -hmm. So there's five basic aspects, or there's always been five basic traditional aspects in Western astrology. Um, let me see if I can pull up a diagram really quickly in order to show you those aspects. So here we go. All right. So we've talked about the conjunction, which is with when two planets occupy either the same degree or the same sign. Um, the other aspects are the sextile, which is when two planets are either 60 degrees apart 
or are three signs apart. So for example, let's let's say that Mercury is in the middle of the sign of Cancer. So it would be sextile by sign to any planets in Virgo or any planets in Taurus. So that's three signs apart, or if you measure it exactly 60 degrees from the middle of Cancer, let's say 15 degrees of Cancer, then that would go to 15 degrees of Virgo or to 15 degrees of Taurus. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to balance between introducing both sign-based and degree-based aspects at the same time. So that might be a little complicating things, but hopefully in the long term that makes people understand the importance and sort of interchangeability between sign-based and degree-based aspects. Mm-hmm. So the next aspect after the conjunction and the sextile is the square, which is when uh, two planets are either exactly 90 degrees apart or when they are four signs apart. So for example, a planet in Cancer would be square to a planet in Libra or square to a planet in Aries. Um, yeah, or if you measure it exactly 90 degrees from, from 15 Cancer, it would go to 15 Libra or to 15 Aries. Um, the next aspect after that is a trine, and that measures the distance either between 120 degrees or between five signs. So a planet in Cancer would be trying to a planet in Scorpio or to a planet in Pisces. And then finally, the opposition, which is either seven signs or sorry, six signs apart on the exact opposite side of the zodiac or exactly 180 degrees, which is the exact degree based opposition. So, for example, a planet in Cancer would be opposite to the sign of Capricorn to any planets in Capricorn, or if you're measuring from 15 degrees of Cancer, the exact opposition would be at 15 degrees of Capricorn. So those are our five basic aspects, and the aspects are all, are based actually on regular polygons. They're they're basically the side of a polygon where if you took for some of the aspects. Um, for example, if you started in Cancer and then drew a line from Cancer to Scorpio, and then another line to Pisces, and then another line from Pisces to Cancer, you end up with a triangle. So the trine aspect is really just one side of an actual three-sided triangle, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the square similarly is a four-sided square, which if you draw a line from Cancer to Libra, and then from Libra to Capricorn, and then from Capricorn to Aries, and then finally back from Aries to Cancer, you end up with a four-sided square or the four-sided polygon of a square. So a square aspect is just one side of that, which is measuring the distance from one sign to another. Mm-hmm. Um, the sextile is a hexagon. So if you started from Cancer and then go to Virgo and then to Scorpio and then to Capricorn, then Pisces, then Taurus, then Cancer, you end up with a six sided polygon, which is a hexagon. And then finally, the opposition is just um, basically dividing the zodiac the in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the diameter in mm-hmm. um, what, in like Euclid's elements or, or in geometry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not technically like, do they technically call it a shape or is it not considered a shape? Because the conjunction and the the 
opposition are not technically one of the shapes. Yeah, I mean, they're not technically polygons, but instead it's just like a point and it's opposite. And then I guess it's everything after that that you get a full sort of polygon or shape. Right. Yeah. All right. So each of those is, each of the aspects is just one side of that. Um, people should, one of the things they should do early on after they've me memorized the symbols for the planets and the symbols for the signs of the zodiac is the very last symbol that you really need to memorize is the symbols for the aspects, the five, uh, the, yeah, the five aspect symbols. Mm -hmm. So there's a conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition. Um, I'm not going to attempt to like describe them for the audio listeners, but just look it up somewhere. And most basic intro to astrology books will have an illustration of these. All right. So we've talked about degree-based aspects versus sign-based aspects. We've talked about the fact that they're geometrical figures. Um, one of the distinctions that we need to make is setting the basis for the sign-based aspects, um, because this is something I spent a lot of time on uh, when I was developing and writing my book on Hellenistic astrology, titled Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune, where I went back and tried to understand the origins of Western astrology and how they came up with this system way back in the beginning. And one of the things I realized is that underlying the basic aspect doctrine is um, and underlying the notion of aspects is the notion that there's certain signs that relate to other signs in different ways. And this is actually really important because it's underlying a lot of the interpretive principles that we use in astrology, even in pop astrology, about you know how you know Scorpios get along with Pisces and other things like that, um, based on the geometrical relationships between the twelve signs of the zodiac. Mm -hmm. So part of the basic premise um, underlying this is that in order for two planets to aspect each other or to see each other, um, and that analogy was used very literally because the term aspect means to see, and originally the concept of aspects was denoting planets that are either able to see each other and therefore able to form some relationship or planets that cannot see each other and therefore cannot form any sort of relationship whatsoever or sort of alienated or turned away from each other. So in order for two planets to see each other, they have to be in signs that share some sort of affinity based on the basic properties of the signs of the zodiac, which are uh, the gender of the signs of the zodiac, which is masculine or feminine. So the masculine, the odd signs, uh, in terms of numerology, were said to be masculine, and the even signs were said to be feminine. So um, that's actually the basis of the sextile aspect. If you look at it, that all planets in sextile are in signs that share an affinity based on only uh, the gender of that sign. Also, people talk about that in terms of like. Uh, nocturnal, diurnal, uh, polarities, things of that nature. You'll hear people talk about it in those terms as well. Um, but yeah, hexagon is the shape. Yeah, and there's been a lot of debate recently in modern times about whether to retain the traditional names or, or sort of designation of like masculine and feminine and associating with gender, or if that should be 
changed. Another alternative, like you mentioned, is referring to the um, odd signs as as diurnal or daytime signs, and the even signs as nocturnal. Um, other people have taken concepts from like Eastern philosophy and applied it like yin and yang in order to use that conceptual structure. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you could go with it. Yeah. The the underlying archetypal thing is all, it's all there. It's all the same soup of archetypal thing there. Yeah. So we'll just, I'll just use it for, continue to use the traditional one for the sake of like ease, but people are free to use whatever they want. Um, all right. So when it comes to that, here is the diagram again. And so a planet in Cancer, let's say that, for example, Mercury is in Cancer. So Cancer is an even sign when you start the numbering from Aries. So Aries is the first sign right after the spring equinox. So that's an odd sign, a number one. And so it's said to be, let's say, masculine for the sake of argument. Mm -hmm. Then the next sign, the second sign is Taurus. So that's an even sign. So it's said to be feminine. Um, then the next sign after that, it just alternates as an odd sign again. It's the third sign. Gemini is masculine. Then Cancer is the fourth sign, and it's feminine, and so on and so forth. So that's the difference between masculine and feminine signs. And so that sets up a basic distinction between even signs and odd signs, and that those signs will relate to each other if they share that in common. And that's the basis of one of the first aspects, which is the sextile. So if Mercury's in Cancer, it's in a feminine sign. And so it shares a commonality with any planets that are in Virgo, which is three signs over, which is also a feminine sign. And it also shares a commonality with any signs in Taurus, which is three signs in the other direction, which is also a feminine sign. So one of the initial ways to understand um, what the aspects mean is just based on this basic understanding of they have an affinity with each other because they're in signs that share something in common. And that basis of, of sharing something in common is the basis for starting to form a relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough just to see each other and fit into this certain polygon. The underlying thing is that these signs share something in common so they can work together. Yeah, and for me this was a really huge when I started studying traditional astrology because this gave a rationale for this the uh, sign-based aspects and it explained why a sign-based aspect could work or be relevant that's outside of the strictly like geometrical lens of looking at aspects. Um, but it also yeah, so that that was Part of it. And the other thing is that it also explains why there's a fundamental distinction between the major aspects, these five major aspects, the first aspects that we're talking about, which are sometimes referred to as the Ptolemaic aspects, just because um, they were outlined in the second century text of Claudius Ptolemy. And that was one of the only texts that was continually transmitted for the past 2000 years. So for a long time, people thought it was like the the Bible of astrology until somewhat recently. Um, so the sign-based aspects in this rationale provides a reason why there's a distinction between these five major aspects versus some other um, minor aspects that were introduced much later, um, especially by the time of Johannes Kepler during the time of the Renaissance. 
So I'm going to save the discussion about the minor aspects for the most part for a separate episode that I'm planning on doing at some point in the future. And instead, we're going to focus here in this discussion on just the five uh, major aspects of conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So the sextile is connects two signs based on gender. The square uh, connects signs based on modality, and modality or what's also sometimes called quadruplicity is the three different types of signs, which are cardinal signs, fixed signs, or mutable signs. So the cardinal signs uh, all fall at the beginning of the seasons, the fixed signs fall in the middle of the seasons, and the mutable signs fall at the end of the seasons. So it basically breaks each season up into thirds. Uh, so anyways, uh, a planet in Cancer, for example, would be in a square aspect by sign to any planets in Libra, since those are both Cancer and Libra, both cardinal signs, and also square to any signs in Aries, because those are both cardinal signs. Uh, so that's the basics of the square. You'll notice, though, that the gender of the square is um, reversed here. So a square aspect is connecting two signs that share something in common based on modality or quadruplicity, which is cardinal, fixed, or mutable, but it's actually um, two signs that do not share the same relationship in terms of gender. So there's a little bit of a, a tension there or a little bit of a, you might say a mismatch, but mm-hmm. let's just say tension for the sake, sake of argument. Right, sure. Sure. Um, all right, but that's the basis of the square, and that kind of starts to get us into the, the qualities or the properties of the aspects, which we'll get into here in just a moment. Um, the next is the trine aspect, which connects planets that have the same element or the same triplicity, which is the four classical elements from Greek philosophy, which are earth, air, fire, and water. So a trine connects uh, planets that are in signs that share the same element. So for example, a planet in Cancer is trine to a planet in Scorpio because those are both water signs. And a planet in Cancer is also trying to a planet in Pisces because Pisces is also a water sign, just as Cancer is. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the last aspect is the opposition. And planets in opposition are in signs that share actually the same gender and the same uh, modality, but they have opposite um, elemental qualities. So in this instance, Cancer, the water sign, is opposite to Capricorn, the earth sign. And earth signs are said to be dry, and water signs are said to be wet. So wet and dry are opposite qualities. Right. Um, And then similarly with the other signs, the fire signs are in opposition, which are hot, are in opposition to the air signs, which are said to be cool or cooling. Let me see if I have a diagram for that. So that starts to set us up with some basic qualities and starts to explain where some of the qualities of the aspects come from. Mm -hmm. They don't just come from the um, geometrical natures, but also partially through the qualities of the signs that they're connecting. Right. So there's the different qualities of the signs with earth, air, fire, and water. Again, that's a basic concept that 
people should have learned at this point already when studying the signs of the zodiac, and that's one of the reasons you have to study the signs first before you get into aspects because the concept kind of build on each other. Mm-hmm. All right, there's the hot, cold, oh, yeah, that's great, wet and dry thing. That's based on the Stoic qualities. There were some mm-hmm. complications later in the tradition where some other qualities from Aristotle started getting um, applied, but I think that was a, a mistake and. We can see many of the earlier astrologers that first introduced some of these concepts were using these Stoic qualities um, in terms of which ones they applied to which signs. Got it. All right. So, where are we at at this point? All right. We are at, oh, some history there? Yeah, I guess we, I mean, we can touch on that really quickly, which is just that, well, well, Actually, two things. Already. So one one of them is aversions that we have to mention, which mm-hmm. is what happens when a planet is in a sign that doesn't have any of those qualities or any of those affinities in common. And what happens is that the planets are said to be not in aspect or said to be in aversion. So for example, let's say a planet is in the sign of cancer. Um, there's going to be Eight signs that it, it aspects, or I guess seven signs besides the one that it's in that it aspects, and there's going to be four signs that it does not aspect or would be said to be in aversion or turned away from. Mm-hmm. So if a planet's in Cancer, then it's in aversion to the signs of Gemini, Leo, Sagittarius, and Aquarius. Because if you look about, if you look at and consider and count up those three qualities that we talked about earlier. You'll notice that Cancer does not share any of those qualities in common with those four signs. So, for example, um, Cancer is a feminine sign, whereas all four of those other signs are masculine signs. So, Gemini, Leo, Sagittarius, and Aquarius are all masculine signs, so it does not share that in common with Cancer. Um, Cancer is a cardinal sign, so it's one of the four cardinal signs, uh, whereas Gemini is a mutable sign, uh, Leo is fixed, Sagittarius is mutable, and Aquarius is fixed. So it doesn't share any commonality based on modality or quadruplicity either. Um, and then finally, the last one is element or triplicity, where Cancer is a water sign, and none of those other four signs are water signs. They're either air signs in the case of Aquarius and Gemini, or they're fire signs in the case of Leo and Sagittarius. So, as a result of that, um, there's no affinity between the signs. So, there's said to be an aversion, and there's an aversion when there is no aspect uh, between a planet based on the signs that it's in. Right. So, then if you have planets that are in aversion to each other in these houses, uh, then they don't have anything really in common and they're not going to be connecting or seeing each other in that way. Yeah, they're kind of just ignoring each other, which is. Sometimes not a good thing because sometimes you want positive planets to aspect other planets in your chart. But sometimes an aversion can be a good thing, actually, because sometimes you don't want certain planets, like let's say malefics or challenging planets, to aspect other planets in your chart. But sometimes it's actually useful if if they're in aversion to whatever planet you're looking at. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So. That's the basic. So, this is also part of the reason in ancient astrology, and it creates a bit of a division between modern and ancient astrology, where 
Um, in later forms of astrology, they introduced some additional aspects, such as the semi-sextile and the inconjunct or quincunx. And um, while those are recognized as aspects in some forms of modern astrology, they weren't recognized as aspects in ancient astrology because of this conceptual structure that had to do with an aspect needing to connect planets that share uh, qualities in common based on the signs that they're located in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think the middle ground there is just that it all says something, you know, even if, you know, regardless of obviously it's important to understand the concepts, but um, we get just as much information out of, you know, a version than not, right? Yeah, between a lack of an aspect, I guess it's just a matter of how you conceptualize it. And if you're conceptualizing right, it but- as the non-existence of an aspect versus mm-hmm. the aspect and and what qualities you're attributing to that and whether they would be the same. Right. So, you know, not to just like ignore um signs or planets that are in aversion, but that they're they're important too. Right. For right. sure. Yeah. And and they can definitely tell you something as as you were saying. Mm-hmm. So um Let's see. So that's the concept, and focusing especially on sign-based aspects. There was also in ancient astrology the concept of degree-based aspects, which is just important as important. And it was based on this notion that each of the planets is always emitting these seven partile or degree-based rays uh, of vision from the exact degree that the planet occupies. To the exact same degree in seven other signs. So, for example, if Mercury is at 15 degrees of Cancer, then it sends a sextile ray to 15 degrees of Virgo and to 15 degrees of Taurus. It sends two square aspect rays to 15 Libra and 15 Aries. And it sends two trine aspect rays to 15 Scorpio and 15 Pisces. And then finally, one exact opposition ray or aspect to 15 degrees of Capricorn. And what happens is the different planets are always moving around the zodiac and they're always emitting these rays until eventually that exact ray of vision passes over another planet, at which point the aspect or the configuration goes exact. So, um, what happened is that in ancient astrology, they, they used both sign based and degree based aspects. As the tradition went on further and further, it seems like there was more and more of an emphasis many centuries later on the degree-based aspects, and those came to dominate um, most of the astrological tradition because they were seen as more important and more intense until eventually I feel like at some point by the time of modern astrology, um, the sign-based aspects largely fell out of use and only degree-based aspects were recognized as, as real or true aspects in some ways. Right. So this has been a little bit of a change over the past decade or two with the revival of ancient astrology and traditional astrology because we've had this revival of um, not just sign-based aspects, but also the rationale for these sign-based aspects and seeing how it's integrated into the rest of the system and how it forms part of the basis of the entire aspect doctrine itself. So that's one of the reasons I use both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects in my work. Um, I'll have to get into more of the history of that later once I do the minor aspects episode in a separate discussion. All right. So at this point, I guess we're going on to 
the concept of like applying versus separating aspects, right? Right. Okay. So this is a pretty straightforward concept, um, which you can take back to the idea of a conjunction where you have two planets that are um, in a conjunction, ideally, an exact conjunction is when they're both occupying the exact same space or the exact same degree in a specific sign of the zodiac, like both at, let's say, 15 degrees of Cancer. But um, what do you do when you have two planets that are not quite at an exact aspect yet, like a conjunction, but are moving towards each other so that they will form the exact conjunction in the near future? Um, that's called an applying aspect or an application, um, and it's basically just an applying aspect is an aspect that's moving together or will become exact at some point in the not too distant future. Um, and that's contrasted with a separating aspect, which is when two planets have recently completed an exact aspect, such as a conjunction, but they're starting to move apart from each other. So that the distance between them is growing rather than um, becoming less and less. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think I think that's that's basically the basis, especially with the conjunction. That's really easy to visualize in a chart. But applying versus separating aspects also applies to the other four aspects as well of the sextile, uh, square, trine, and opposition. Just based on are the is the exact aspect getting closer and closer. Or is it moving further and further apart? Right. Yep. And then just being careful if you are looking at that in a chart for anybody who is um, not presuming the speed all the time, because um, sometimes planets will move slower or faster and it might look just at first glance like um, you have an application or a separation. Um, but if you animate the chart a few days, you're like, oh, no, actually, that's move not moving in that direction. So um, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, so part of what you're bringing up is just that different planets move um, at different speeds, mm -hmm. and also planets can sometimes move forward in the zodiac when they're direct, versus when they go retrograde, they start moving backwards in the zodiac, so they can yeah, change and that. direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you have to pay attention to um, if the planets are like what direction the planets are moving, if they're moving direct or if they're retrograde. Mm -hmm. As well as what their speed is, really, in order to know for sure whether two planets are applying or separating. Right. Yeah. Most of the time, it's it's pretty obvious, but not all the time. Yeah, and and additionally, sometimes, um, like on sites like Astro.com, if you look in the bottom left corner of the chart, which is the little section called the Aspectarian. It'll mm -hmm. sometimes show a little A, which means applying, mm -hmm. or it will show an S, which means separating. So you can use that as a little cheat sheet as well. Yep. On Astro Gold, if there are any users of that out there, it's the grid view versus the circle view. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. um, and another really good way to visualize it also is if you get some software that can animate or move the chart. So I use um, SolarFire from alabe.com. You can use the promo code AP15 to get a discount on it. So let's do an example. Since the moon is the fastest of the like traditional quote-unquote planets, let's use the moon to give an example. 
So here's the moon in a few days from now on October 9th. We had talked about before the moon will form a conjunction with Venus at two degrees of Sagittarius that day. So earlier in the day, at let's say like 11:39 a.m., the moon here in Denver will be at zero degrees of Sagittarius, and Venus will be at two degrees of Sagittarius. So that means the moon is only two degrees from forming an exact conjunction with Venus. And if you move the chart forward in time, you'll see that the moon um, will slowly drift towards Venus and get closer and closer and closer to it. First, it'll get to one degree of set. It'll move from zero to one degree of Sagittarius. Then, eventually, a couple hours later, it'll move to two degrees of Sagittarius, where it will form the exact conjunction with Venus, um, both by degree as well as by minute. So, the degree of two degrees of Sagittarius is the exact degree. But if you look at the other side of that, it shows the minutes are. Two degrees and thirty-three minutes of Sagittarius, which are like smaller divisions of the signs. So eventually, um, it will change. The moon will actually change side or change sides when it switches from one side of Venus to the other. And at that point, the moon will start separating from Venus, and eventually, it will move from two degrees of Sagittarius to three degrees of Sagittarius. And then eventually it'll move to four and five degrees of Sagittarius. And at this point, because it's moving away from the conjunction, it's moving away from the degree of Venus, it's separating and is a separating conjunction. So does that make sense in terms of applying versus separating aspects? Absolutely. All right. So again, that's the conjunction, and the conjunction is sort of like the archetypal aspect. Um, but the same thing applies to other aspects as well. And maybe we should do one of those really quickly just to give an example. Moon and Saturn there are sextile, aren't they? In that chart? Yeah. Let's do a trine though, just to make it um clear. Let me put the moon in Gemini, which it will be later this month. So here on October 24th, this is actually our electional chart this month. Well, it's not the exact time, but I forgot to mention the election in the forecast episode this month, but it falls on the 24th. So just a heads up for anybody that hears this in time. So at 7.40 p.m. on October 24th, or let's say even earlier in the day on October 24th, let's say we start out earlier in the morning at 9.40 a.m., the moon is at 15 degrees of Gemini. And Jupiter is at 22 degrees of Gemini, or sorry, 22 degrees of Aquarius. So the moon by sign is in a sign that is trine with Jupiter because uh, the moon is in Gemini, which is an air sign, and Aquarius is also an air sign. So we know that they're already in an aspect of a, a trine, a sign based trine, but at a certain point, as the moon starts getting closer and closer to 22 degrees of Gemini, that's the point at which it will form an exact trine with Jupiter, which is 120 degrees. That's the exact aspect of the trine. Mm -hmm. So if we animate the chart and move it forward, the moon starts out the day at like 15, 16 Gemini, but over the course of the day, the moon will go through 17, 18, 19. 20, 21, and eventually it'll hit 22 degrees of Gemini. 
And at that point, it forms the exact trine with Jupiter. So that means for most of the day, the moon is in an applying aspect because it's moving towards the as- exact aspect with Jupiter. But then eventually, as soon as it completes the exact aspect and gets to exactly 120 degrees away from Jupiter, then it will start separating from the trine and it will go into a separating aspect. So, especially once it gets to 23 degrees of Gemini, 24 Gemini, 25 Gemini, it's in a separating degree based trine. And then eventually, uh, the following day, the moon will change signs completely once it moves from Gemini into Cancer, at which point it's no longer forming a sign based trine with Jupiter at all. But instead, has moved into a sign that is in aversion to Jupiter and is not aspecting it by sign. Right. All right. So that's applying versus separating. Part of the trick with applying versus separating the interpretive principle. Um, it comes up especially in electional astrology and to some extent in horary astrology as well, where applying aspects are said to indicate things that are coming up in the future. Whereas separating aspects indicate things that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's very useful when it comes to electional astrology. If you're trying to pick something that you want to happen in the future, then you try to focus on applying aspects. Whereas if you're trying to make it so that that thing indicated by the aspect is in the past, then you make it a separating aspect. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. All right, so I was using the moon for this because the moon is the fastest planet, so it's the easiest planet to demonstrate aspects with. But basically, basically all of the planets make applying and separating aspects at different points. It's just that some of the planets move much more slowly, so their aspects take take much longer periods of time to form. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that's applying versus separating. Um, again, that brings up the idea of orbs, where there's no standard range for orbs. You're going to find in different books, different astrologers are going to rep- uh, recommend different ranges for degree-based aspects. Um, I think the safest thing is just to th- say that planets move into aspect as soon as they move into signs that are configured, and it just gets more intense the closer are they are to the exact aspect. Right. Um, there can be degree-based aspects that cross sign boundaries. It gets into a broader issue at that point about what orbs you use, but definitely if the planets are within, like, let's say, three degrees, which was a common orb that was used in ancient astrology for close sign-based aspects, um, three degrees for planets or uh, 13 degrees for the moon, then it would still count as a degree-based aspect even if they're not connected by sign. All right, so that's all the basic like definition stuff. Now I think we have to get into um, the meaning of aspects and how you actually interpret them. Were there any other like basic definition things that we should have dwelled on or that we glossed over a little little bit too fast? I don't think so. Um, yeah, because you covered the the last piece there about degree versus out of sign aspects. So yeah, I have nothing to add. That sounds good. All right. So at this point, I think we should transition into talking about the meaning of aspects. And um, once you've established the different ranges, like what does an aspect actually mean when you're looking at it in practice? Mm -hmm. All right. So 
Um, one of the starting points for that, um, I wanted to read a little passage. This is from the third century astrologer Porphyry uh, in his chapter where he just outlines the basic basics of the aspect doctrine, and it's derived from an earlier astrologer from the first century named Antiochus of Athens. So this translation is from Levant Laszlo uh, from his Horai translation project, which is available on Patreon, where he's just translating a bunch of Greek astrological texts, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So Porphyry says, they call the mutual configurations of the stars bearing testimony. These figures are the trigon, the figure within five signs, when there are three intermediate signs between the two affected signs, the tetragon, the figure within four signs, when there are two intermediate signs between them, the diameter, the figure within seven signs, when there are five intermediate signs, the hexagon, the figure within three signs, when there is one intermediate sign between them. So that's just basic definition of sign-based aspects. And then he says, the configuration by trigon, so the trine, is sympathetic and beneficial and when a malefic is involved, he is less harmful. The tetragonal configuration is unpleasant and inharmonious and capable of causing distress when a malefic is involved. The diametrical configuration is adversative, but it is even more pernicious when a malefic is involved. And the hexagonal configuration is weaker. Um, Finally, he says, one must also see if the figures are perfect according to the degree and not only according to the sign. The The trigon is 120 degrees, the tetragon is 90 degrees, the hexagon is 60 degrees, and the diameter in 180 degrees. For the stars are often configured by sign, but not by degree. So, here he's just outlining the basic basis of sign-based aspects versus degree-based aspects, and also giving us a little pointer in terms of some of the meaning of the aspects. Um, it's a little tricky because they used um, geometrical terminology that's a little different from the names that we give the aspects today, but for the most part, you can still sort of tell what, what it's talking about. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and he also points out that difference between degree-based and sign-based. They recognized it pretty early on. Yeah, so that's pretty core mm-hmm. to the basic basis of the aspect doctrine and to the major so-called major aspects or the Ptolemaic aspects or whatever you want to want to call them. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the quality of the aspects, there's a few different things that you can look at in order to understand what they mean. Um, one of them that we started talking about was the affinities between the signs and the inherent affinities between certain signs based on gender or quadruplicity or element. Um, Another conceptual structure that was used in ancient astrology for understanding the basic nature of the aspects is by looking at them in the context of the traditional rulership scheme, where you assign the moon, the two luminaries, to the two signs following the summer solstice, which are uh, Cancer to the moon, and then the sun to Leo, and then the rest of the planets are assigned to the signs flanking out from there in zodiacal order based on their relative speed and distance from the sun. So the next planet out is Mercury, which gets assigned to Virgo and Gemini. Then Venus is the next planet out, and it gets assigned to Libra and Taurus. 
then Mars is the next planet to Scorpio and Aries, Jupiter to Sagittarius and Pisces, and then finally Saturn to the two furthest signs from the luminaries, which are Capricorn and Aquarius. So when you draw aspect lines from the two luminaries and you divide the zodiac into two hemispheres in between the Cancer and Leo axis, what you end up with is the sextile aspect goes from each of the luminaries, from the Sun and the Moon to Venus. So for example, um, the Sun in Leo is sextile to Venus in Libra, and the Moon in Cancer is sextile to Venus in Taurus. So what this tells us is that the sextile is of the nature of Venus, and Venus is the lesser of the two benefic planets. Right. So the sextile goes to Venus, the square goes to Mars, which is in Scorpio and Aries, the trine goes to Jupiter in Sagittarius and Pisces, and the opposition goes to Saturn in Capricorn and Aquarius. So you end up with the sextile is uh, to the lesser benefic Venus, and the sextile is the weaker of the two benefic aspects. The square goes to Mars, and the square is said to be the somewhat weaker of the two hard aspects, or they're somewhat less difficult of the two hard aspects between the square and the opposition. The trine goes to Jupiter, which is the greater benefic, and the trine is said to be the most positive aspect. And then finally, the opposition goes to Saturn, and Saturn is the greater malefic, and the opposition is said to be the most difficult of the two hard aspects between the square and the opposition. Mm-hmm. So it sets up a lot of symbolism right out of right out of the gate. You immediately get a lot of information about what it means to have a square versus what it means to have an opposition. What's the difference between a sextile and a trine if they're both good? Well, of the nature of Venus versus of the nature of Jupiter, and when then you get to kind of know what Jupiter and Venus are, and it makes a lot more sense. So, all yeah, kind of works together. Right. So it starts bringing together like a bunch of different concepts at this point, mm-hmm. but also through those overlaps, we can start to understand what different parts of the system mean. Mm-hmm. So um, that's really useful. And some of the things that it brings up are things that, like, for example, the sextile is, um, you know, of the nature of Venus and it's like somewhat positive and helping to unite two planets or to smooth over the relationship and create a somewhat flowing relationship between two planets. So mm-hmm. it's of it's moderately good, let's say, versus um, the trine, which is associated with Jupiter, um, is more of an, a strongly affirming aspect that especially when benefic planets are involved can give you a strong yes or positive or affirming type relationship between two planets that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, conversely, the square goes to Mars, and Mars. One of the tricky things with the square is the square can cause a lot of tension, or can indicate a lot of tension between two planets, where they're sort of at cross purposes to some extent and not getting along very good. Or there can be like irritations between them, in the same way that Mars indicates things that are sort of irritating or can inflame things. Um, but at the same time, the square is often treated as an aspect that's also very powerful or very energetic, and that that's also a consideration that's often given to Mars, where where Mars tends to speed things up um, and also indicate like energy things that have a lot of energy or vitality. 
Right. Yeah. I think about um, with squares and Mars, just the fact that it really reflects those pivot points in the chart that are called pivots and the, the what do they call them? The goading points, the goad being like the cow prod. So when I think about planets in like a square relationship, I, I'm always thinking about that cow prod and, you know, just moving things along. Um, so that energetic quality of like change or action being taken, adjustments being made to friction, things like that. Um, thinking about that imagery versus how that's different from an opposition where we have Saturn and we have two different extremes in polarity if you have two planets that are in opposition. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, I like that, that the first house and fourth house and seventh and tenth and also the degrees associated with those were said to be the kentrons that like goad things into action in ancient astrology, and that is exactly very much like Mars symbolism. Mm -hmm. So it goads them into action or into motion. So that leads to a complicated relationship with the square and to some extent with the hard aspects in general, the conjunction square, and also to some extent the opposition. Once you get into modern astrology, where they're treated often as aspects that can indicate tension or difficulties, especially if there's difficult planets involved in them, but there's also thought to be a tremendous amount of power in them. So they're said to be very powerful aspects that indicates things that will happen or get something moving, even if it's not necessarily good. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really, we're coming upon an important point of all of this is just how we put our subjective uh, judgments on top of uh, what is kind of a, I guess, in an inherently neutral kind of conceptual framework, right? So if we have squares and oppositions or conjunctions that we find quote unquote difficult or um, which they certainly of the nature of Mars, of the nature of Saturn, yes. But yeah, what's you know what's actually happening in that story? What is it that's being delayed or stopped by that opposition versus what is being put into action or not um, with the square? Right. Yeah. So the squares, even in ancient astrology, I know there's a passage on some from some ancient astrologer that talks about the squares being. Um, tremendously powerful and not always bad, but just very energetic and able to get things going. Right. Um, so, and then finally, the opposition is of the nature of Saturn and um, tends to be because it's on opposite signs of the zodiac, um, it tends to be two things that are pulling in opposite directions, kind of like when you stretch a rubber band to its utmost extreme. And either it's at the point where it will snap and like break, or it's at the point where you just can't pull any further because there's two things that are on like equal footing that are just pulling in the opposite direction, so that there has to be um, a point where they reach equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Right. So Saturn is also the greater malefic and has this potential and a tendency to negate or say no to things. And so part of the potential. Um, tendency with an opposition, especially if a, a malefic is involved like Mars or Saturn, can be to negate or say no to what the other planet wants to signify. Um, and that can be a, a potential with the opposition as well in terms of what it indicates and some of the t tensions that it indicates. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So um, that gets us to part of the basic nature of the aspects that, generally speaking, um, the sextiles and trines are 
tend to be more positive or flowing or easy, and the squares and oppositions tend to be a little bit more challenging or potentially negative or um, dynamic and energetic, but sometimes that energy can be difficult to deal with. Right. Yeah. And then what is the kind of the perception and how it feels out, you know, in the real world for the person who is living that transit or has that in their chart? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and then finally, the conjunction is treated as kind of neutral and capable of going either way, where it depends on the planets involved. So, conjunctions with a benefic like Venus or Jupiter are going to tend to be experienced as a little bit more easy to deal with or positive, whereas conjunctions with a malefic can, like Mars or Saturn will be tend to be experienced as a little bit more challenging or sometimes mm -hmm. hard to deal with. Um, but because of the sort of neutrality, in, inherent neutrality of a conjunction, it can kind of go either way. And it's more of a just a matter of blending the uh, significations or the meanings of those two planets together in some ways. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you can get so many variations and, and different, yeah, different combinations of things. It's really hard to tell how conjunctions will turn out all the time. Right. For sure. Right. And yeah. And, and then with conjunctions, you run into the issue also of where you can have just two planets in a conjunction, but then you can also get into three planet conjunctions or four planets in the same sign or within right. the same degrees, which is the concept of a, a stellium, uh, which I did an episode on just a few months back. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. So many possibilities. Yeah. Um, all right. There's one more diagram for the sextile, the square, the trine, and the opposition, and which planets those are connected to in the traditional domicile scheme or the traditional planetary rulership scheme. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so let's um, drill down a little bit more on some of the meanings of some of these aspects. Like I know we've talked about it and touched on it a little bit here, but there's just a few more things that might be worth dwelling on. Um, one of them, like we said, with conjunctions is that you have the most intense conjunction is when two planets are at the exact same degree, but they can also be in the same sign, in which case they were said to be co-present in ancient astrology as if they're present in the same house or home together or like dwelling place and therefore having some influence on each other um, even if they're not occupying the same room. And We had that whole sort of analogy and now you can start to understand using that analogy uh, how it really matters or depends on which planets we're talking about um, when it comes to a conjunction. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So the idea of the conjunction, there's a few different conceptual models underlying some of this stuff, which are whole sort of digressions that we're not going to get fully into. One of them is the idea of harmonics and of musical theory and how musical theory may be tied into aspects a little bit um, in terms of different chords and different like relationships or sort of vibrations that different planets have. Um, music theory is not my specialty, so I'm gonna save that for like another not you either. You're not like a music no. expert. No, for everyone I just did the way over my head gesture. I have no idea about any of that. I just know math and music and numbers and shapes all go together in like some fancy sauce that somebody's good at <laughs> making. <laughs> yeah. So I'll save that for another interview at some point with someone. I've a few options for that. 
another one is um, Pythagorean numerology was potentially influencing the development of some of the aspect doctrine in ancient astrology and some of those notions of odd and even numbers that we were talking about earlier. Um, but also, um, some of the other basic differences were just in numbers in terms of the conjunction. When two planets are together, it's like they're forming one body in some sense. So they're coming together to form one thing, which is like the concept of oneness and of um, wholeness and of singularity in some sense. But the opposition is the concept of two planets, um, two things div being divided into two. And the sort of contrasts when you go from one thing to having two things, and the inherent sometimes tensions um, that come up when it comes to that, when it creates uh, sort of binary um, opposites like day versus night, like positive versus negative, water versus oil. Uh, yeah, they just, and if you think about the house model where it's like if you're in your own domicile and then across the way is your antithesis or you're in exile, it's like literally as far away from you as possible on the other side of things. Right. So in the traditional rulership scheme, the planets are set up in opposition to each other so that um, the quality of those planets is seen to be contradictory in some sense. So for example, the sun and moon in Cancer and Leo, the two lights or luminaries are set in opposition to Saturn ruling Capricorn and Aquarius. And Saturn is like the furthest and the slowest and the the dimmest or the darkest of the visible planets. Right. The Lord of Darkness. Yeah. And so the sun and the moon are in the signs that follow the summer solstice, which is during the hottest and brightest part of the year during the northern in the northern hemisphere, whereas Saturn rules the two signs following the winter solstice during the darkest and coldest part of the year in the northern hemisphere. So we've got these contrasts going on of like hot versus cold and light versus dark and other things like that. Right. So then if you have two planets, one occupying each ends of that, um, it might just kind of symbolize or feel like two irreconcilable or difficult to reconcile types of influences in the, in the life. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like um, that there's a fundamental tension between those two because they're really speaking from opposite ends of a spectrum. Right. And so as a result of that, it's hard for them to see the other. And sometimes there may be a feeling like if one of them gives any ground or that if one of them takes any ground, then the other will lose. So it's that's part of the sort of tension there. Like a tug of war, like a literal tug of war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A tug of war between yeah. the planets. I think that's part of the basic um, feeling underlying an mm -hmm. opposition. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that you've got a tug of war between two sets of two planets in your chart, mm -hmm. and that's creating a, a tension in that area of your life. Right, and like talking to people who have those types of placements, um, something that I notice is just like they may even go from really focusing on one part of that diameter. For a while, and then trying to overcompensate, and then going to the other area, you know, and focusing on that more in their life, and just kind of going back and forth. This oscillation that can happen, and and yeah, that's that's tense. That feels like tension, not knowing, you know, which side to pay more attention to. Sometimes, um, yeah, right, yeah, for sure. Um, so, 
let's see, other things that that brings up when we start getting into the houses, and I know that's getting a little bit ahead, but um, some of the houses you can understand in terms of the opposition as well, and that can help you either to understand the nature of the opposition or to understand how the opposition can play out based on what houses it's occupying in a person's chart. But one of the most um, classic oppositions that shows up in the meanings of the houses is the, the opposition between the first house of self, which represents the native or the person who was born at that time, versus the seventh house of the other and of relationships or of partnership and marriage. So there sometimes when a person has an opposition between the first house and the seventh house, there can be tensions in the person's life between um, the person's sense of self and you know what that means in a broad sense versus their sort of duty to others or their uh, how they relate to other people in their life through relationships or through partnership. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know, fourth and tenth, you know, private and public life, home and work, another classic, classic pair. Yeah, and what and what a funny, you know, sort of like cliche <laughs> tension, you know, that that is already talked about outside of, you know, astrology and modern society, the the tension between one's home life versus one's work life. Mm-hmm. Um, or one's private life versus one's public life and reputation and how, for example, let's say sometimes with um, celebrities, like a person's reputation, which is their 10th house, might be very different than um, their fourth house and what they're actually like in private or like at home. Exactly. Um, or for some people, of course, as we were just sort of talking about, you know, sometimes a person's focus on their work life can be to the the detriment of their home life and their their family and their fourth house. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Very classic. And it, yeah, like you, it's those things that are so ubiquitous to life. And it's just really, it's nice to see that reflected in first, fourth, seventh, tenth, like the most active houses that we have. Makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, so one other opposition we're mentioning is um, the second house is said to be the place of your personal finances and, and your possessions, whereas the eighth house is said to be the house that represents the possessions of others or the money that belongs to other people because it's the second house relative to the seventh. Right. So um, that can sometimes create a tension sometimes between like your assets versus your partner's assets, um, especially if there's an imbalance there for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the fifth house, 11th house opposition is a little bit more tricky because it's not as like challenging or doesn't stand out as much some of these other yeah. oppositions. This one feels more nuanced to me too. Like, I, one way that I think about it is just if I'm creating something in the fifth, am I sharing it? With people in the in the eleventh, that's one way mm. I think about it. Okay, yeah, I um, I was talking to somebody recently that was having like a Saturn return in the fifth, and uh, one of the interesting things was they were, they were having tensions with a friend of theirs where um, some of the stuff they're going through in their Saturn return was causing major tensions with their specific friends. So that part of her Saturn return seemed to be losing this friend or having to get some distance or some space. Mm. 
Um, one possible, I mean, one funny like opposition thing between the fifth house of children and the eleventh house of friends is like sometimes once a person has children, they may not have as much time to like go hang out with their friends because they're like raising right. a raising a kid. Right. Yeah. That that's actually a really really good one. That's that's super interesting. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Oh, I I, yeah. I sense like a slight. Um, maybe you've, you've had some friends re- recently that have disappeared. <laughs> More like my brothers. Bye. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's what happens. So that's how it's supposed to go. Hashtag blessed. Too blessed to be stressed. Right. Um, Very and fifth then house. F- finally, the last one is the third house and ninth house, which again is not, or it's one of the last. Actually, there's one other besides that. But some of the oppositions that are set up in terms of the significations of the houses are things like short distance travel versus long distance travel, or um, a person's neighborhood as opposed to um, a person's like foreign countries and other things like that. Yep. So familiar stuff, unfamiliar stuff, or broadening your horizons in the ninth versus sticking to kind of newer, more familiar, closer things in the third. Um, those bigger rituals or like pilgrimages, like uh, once in a lifetime religious events in the ninth versus, you know, I might go to temple or synagogue or church on Sunday. I might Saturday, I might light my, my moon candle from sphere and sundry on Monday. Um, those little daily third house, tiny things that we do. So I feel like the third and the ninth is, is a really another pretty clear dichotomy. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then also sometimes in modern astrology, the third house is said to be like um, early, like K through twelve schooling, whereas the ninth house is said to be uh, like college and higher forms of education. Yep. Um, finally, another opposition is the sixth house and the eighth house, and this is a little bit more tricky. I think in ancient astrology there may have been a distinction sometimes between. Um, like physical injuries sometimes being more of a sixth house thing versus mental types of afflictions being more of a twelfth house thing Mm -hmm. um, as one of the implicit statements made. Um, Both of them are said to relate to enemies in ancient astrology, but the sixth house may have been more like external um, enemies that are obvious, whereas the twelfth house may have been more Either internal enemies, or sometimes it related to self undoing, because it's um, connected with the first house, or it's falling away from the third house, as opposed to the sixth house, which is connected to the seventh house of other people. Right, right, and and just the idea of you know bad fortune versus bad spirit and fortune kind of being more tied to this kind of earthen physical, tangible quality versus spirit just being this more intangible type of quality and having 12th house be intangible, hidden things we can't see, hidden enemies, hidden afflictions versus physical, like tangible, I can feel it, touch it, see it type of afflictions or enemies. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So that's interesting to explore. Obviously, that gets into something more advanced here where we're talking about the significations of the houses and different things like that. But um, yeah, for in that at least, this is where Very some of the different- yeah, the aspects, especially the opposition, really start to become relevant. And you can see how it sets up sometimes tensions, and other times it can be uh, opposite sides of the same coin in some sense, as we saw with some of those houses. So the opposition um, tends to be more challenging when there's challenging or quote unquote malefic planets involved in it. It tends to be less challenging 
when there's benefic planets involved. Um, yeah, but it partially depends on how the planets are situated in the chart, what houses they're in, and other things like sect and things like that as well. Yeah, many, many things to consider beyond just looking at the aspects for sure. Right. All right. Um, the last thing with the opposition is just that I had already mentioned previously in passing earlier, but just the point that it brings up um, opposing elemental qualities based on the signs that the two planets are located in. And just that opposing quality of hot versus cold or wet versus dry as another major thing that comes into play, just in terms of why there's a fundamental tension there because they're coming from opposing elemental quality type places. Exactly. All right. So, um, oh, yeah, the full moon. This is something I was talking oh, with yeah. Drew, Drew, Drew Levanti about, which is. Um, Conjunctions and oppositions, and to a lesser extent squares, are actually more most clearly seen in the lunation cycle, where when the sun and moon uh, are in a conjunction, that's a new moon. That a new moon is basically defined by uh, the conjunction between the sun and the moon, whereas a full moon is when the moon is exactly in opposition to the sun. So let me animate the chart. And we'll still focus here on October, where we're about to have a new moon, where here we can see the moon catching up to and conjoining the sun at 13 degrees of Libra tomorrow morning on October 6, 2021. Then if you move the moon forward about 14 days, um, it will eventually reach the degree opposite to the sun. And when the moon is at the exact degree opposite to the sun, that's when we have a full moon each month, since it takes the moon about 28 days to do a full cycle. Um, so the full moon is always the opposition. And one of the things about that, that especially in modern astrology, starting with um, the astrologer Dane Rudyard, he really focused on the lunation cycle as being the sort of archetype for the entire aspect doctrine. And there's a lot of interesting things that he drew from that, but one of the things was just the notion that the full moon is one of the most archetypally uh, ar archetypal images for the opposition, whereas the new the new moon is like the conjunction. So the new moon at the new moon, the moon is at its darkest and it's at the very beginning of a cycle. And as soon as it separates from the sun after the conjunction, it starts um, increasing in light. So just after the new, new moon, once the moon increases the distance and starts moving away from the sun, if you pay attention to it and look at it each night, it starts getting brighter and brighter and getting fuller and fuller. Eventually, when the moon reaches the square with the sun at 90 degrees, um, that's when we get the first quarter moon. So the moon is like half illuminated at that point, and the other half of it's dark. Yep. Then once the moon gets to the opposition, it's at peak brightness and peak full fullness. So that's the point where, when the sun sets that day in the evening, the moon will rise, which is another thing that's tied into the opposition. And it's it's part of why I was mentioning earlier that feeling sometimes with the opposition that. In order for for one of us to sort of 
rise or gain here. The other has there's a feeling sometimes that the other has to lose in some way. Oh, that's very perfect. Yeah. So the moon will because oppositions also indicate planets where one of them, when one of them is rising, the other's setting, like we have here in this diagram where the moon is in let's say if it, well, let's say it's in the first house and the sun is in the seventh house, then the moon is rising up over the eastern horizon and the sun is setting. Or if the moon was in the tenth house, then the sun at, at opposition would be in the fourth house. Right. I feel like there was some myth too. Wasn't there like based on the constellations, Hercules is somewhere by Taurus or someone is by Taurus and their job is to get the scorpion. And so there's this constant, like, you know, hunter and prey, this constant chase as one rises, the scorpion sets, you know, and they just chase each other around. I thought that was a myth or something. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 That's a good, good point. Yeah. So it's kind of like people visually saw these things. And a lot of our symbolism comes from these very visual types of occurrences. Right, for sure. Um, yeah, that visual component to astrology is really important. And it's mm -hmm. it's tricky because usually when you learn astrology, you learn it through charts and looking at charts like we're doing now. But that's one of the reasons why it's really important to actually go outside and start paying attention to the sky. Because when mm -hmm. you do that, you get a much more intimate, um, visceral understanding of what the chart is actually representing that's actually happening out there in the sky. Yeah, absolutely. Cannot say that enough. Yeah. So, all right. So, when the moon is exactly in an opposition with the sun, we're at the full moon. The moon is at peak brightness. And, um, you know, the full moon is interesting because that's also, it can be a really active, sort of energetic um, period in the month. And it's a point where the moon really. Comes into her own in some sense and becomes like the luminary at night that is lighting things up and is brightening up the night sky and making things visible. And, you know, the new moon is tricky because sometimes I think in modern times we also associate it with being kind of, it can be like a tense period where there's things come to a culmination or come to a head in some sense. And there's those statements sometimes about like hospitals being more busy during full moons. I don't know if that's. Actually, true, or if that's that's you know not statistically true, but I mean, my anecdotal experience says in the pharmacy it was a hot shit show every full moon. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, I yeah, mean, I can confirm, but that's that's an end of one. That's an anecdote, um, but yeah, well, because okay. the ancients said the light of the moon, you know, directly kind of affects the amount of energy that's there, right? Like more light is more activity or more busyness. Um, so yeah, it would make sense that now you have both luminaries that are both super bright and they're in these polar kind of opposite spaces. So it would make sense that you would get kind of this tense, active environment. Yeah. And it's like, even though I th think for the most part that astrology functions through symbolism and through symbolic means um, when it comes to why planets in astrology work or indicate things, it's through synchronicity and symbolism for the most part. There are still some interesting things about how, you know, the full moon and the moon's phases can affect the tides and the way that some of those things through the gravitational forces of the the sun and the moon do have like biological or other physical impacts on life on Earth and the way that that may subtly like influence things on some broader Level when it comes to like human life and it comes to different trends and things like that, um, things like oppositions 
you know, could in some subtle way be affecting things in, in a more tangible way, even if that's not for the most part why astrology works the way that it does most of the time. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting Venn diagram because of course, like if there's a different amount of light outside, people are gonna do different activities. And of course, like you just mentioned, there's a ton of, I mean, we could sit here for hours with examples in nature of, you know, things responding to the lunar cycles, just either, you know, what we can talk about the material kind of uh, reasoning behind that. But um, yeah, certainly it has had a huge influence on people since forever, since people started peopling. So yeah, it makes sense that it would end up in our astrology as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, it's good to think about that a little bit as well. So we have more of, you know, some of the ancient component of thinking about the opposition in terms of Saturn based on the domicile scheme or based on the opposition of different zodiac signs or different things like that, but also thinking about the lunation cycle as being kind of useful as a, a basic framework for the aspect doctrine as well can be useful as well. And the only other point about that, besides the opposition being like the the full moon and the new moon being like the conjunction and the beginning of a cycle, I guess the full moon would also be the halfway point through the cycle, which is another important thing. Um, the other important thing about the lunation cycle that's relevant is just the two squares. So you have the um, what's called the uh, waxing square, which occurs. Um, after the new moon, like seven days after the new moon, so the new moon is the conjunction. Then, when the moon hits the ninety-degree point relative to the sun, that's the square, and that's the said to be the waxing square because it's on the waxing half where the the moon is increasing in brightness and moving up towards the full moon. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the nature of the square is that turning point when you're at the halfway point on the way to the opposition and on the way to the full moon. Then you get the full moon at the 180 degrees, and then you get the the next square, which would happen at the next 90 degree point to the sun. And that would be what is sometimes confusingly called the third quarter moon. <laughs> so this is at the halfway point between the full moon and the next new moon, when the moon again is half illuminated, um, and it's called the third quarter moon when it's on the what's said to be the waxing side of the lunation cycle when the moon is decreasing in brightness and it's getting darker and or darker waning. and darker. Or yeah, the the waning cycle um, as it's getting ready for the next new moon and the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. Okay. All right. Yes. So that is the opposition, and that's some of the things that come along with the opposition. Um, besides that, um, we get to, I think, the. I mean, I was going to talk about the trine, but actually, we should talk about the square at this point because sure. that's kind of the natural entryway for that, since the lunation cycle that we just talked about provides us the, part of the framework for the square. Um, it's an aspect of tension with a lot of energy, but it's also an important turning point, as we can see from the lunation cycle, where you get those sort of 90 degree points. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of connect these to some extent with the houses a little bit, um, not too much because that framework gets a little bit overdone in, 
in modern astrology and equating things a little bit too much, but for the most part, um, to the extent that the first house is like the conjunction, the seventh house is like the opposition, the two squares are kind of like the tenth house and the fourth house, let's mm -hmm. say relative to the first house. Right. We can use it as an analogy for for the moment for sure. Right. Um, so one of the things about that is just they're said to be very prominent. Squares can tend to be more prominent. They can indicate um, tensions, but also actions and activity between planets, so that the tension between the two planets can be very productive and can spur them into motion in a way that can be even more than other types of aspects. Right. Yeah, just because you have a bunch of squares doesn't mean you're never going to get anything done with your life. I think Kamala Harris's chart is like riddled with squares. So, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so it does get tricky with squares because with squares, um, it can be a very lopsided aspect. With the opposition, mm -hmm. they're both planets that are almost on an even footing that are pulling in two different directions. But with a square, it's tricky because. Um, squares are are tense aspects that more clearly have one planet that's in the up has the upper hand over the other right. planet, so it creates even more of an imbalance in the relationship in some ways than um, the other than the opposition certainly and, and and then the conjunction. So to give an example, let's say that Mars is in Leo and Jupiter is in Taurus. One of the distinctions that was used in ancient astrology that we've recovered recently that kind of fell out of use by the time of modern astrology, but that's become really useful again, is the distinction between um, right-sided versus left-sided aspects. So that distinction is kind of hard to get into, and people always find it super confusing. So I'm actually not going to dwell on it too much in this talk. Because it's something I go into in my book and that I go into in the Hellenistic Astrology course. But the basic gist of it is just that not all squares are the same, and that there's a difference between, let's say, Mars is in Leo and Jupiter is in Taurus. In this instance, Jupiter, because it's in the earlier sign in zodiacal order, would have the upper hand over Mars. And so Jupiter would be in a better position to sort of boss Mars around and tell Mars what to do. So in this instance, it's like the benefic planet Jupiter has the upper hand over Mars. There's tension between them, as if they're sort of like wrestling, as one of the ancient analogies. But Jupiter is the one that has the upper hand and is able to sort of tell Mars a little bit more what to do um, in terms of that aspectual relationship between the two of them. Versus, let's say it was reversed and Jupiter was in Leo and Mars is in Taurus. In that instance, Mars is the one that has the upper hand because it's the one that's earlier in zodiacal order. So in that case, Mars is the one that gets to tell Jupiter what to do. And since that's a square and since Mars is a, a malefic planet, that could be more challenging, especially if this was like a day chart um, where Mars can say, uh, can sort of get Jupiter into a bit more trouble, and Mars can say no to some of the things that Jupiter wants to indicate more. Whereas if it was the reverse and Jupiter has the upper hand in a day chart, Jupiter is able to say yes to uh, or to affirm or smooth things over a little bit more than, than Mars is able to mess things up. Right. So it's not as simple as simply 
you know, on a piece of paper saying Mars square Jupiter, Jupiter square Mars, we need to know much more to be able to tell how is this going to turn out with this interaction between these two planets? What is the outcome going to be? Um, or what, you know, what might this manifestation look like? It's not as simple as just this planet squared this planet. Yeah. And it's really tricky because most like delineation websites or texts, like books that you'll read, will just give you a blank, a blanket interpretation for like Mars square mm-hmm. Jupiter and they won't distinguish. But um, it is actually in practice and in terms of an astrologer interpreting charts that use right versus left sided aspects right. or this concept of overcoming when one planet's in the superior position, it does actually add a lot of nuance it into does. into things. Right. Because we can have kind of our three buckets of, you know, this is Mars stuff, this is Jupiter stuff, and this is a square. And then, of course, mm-hmm. if you want to add in the signs and all of the houses, um, and then we can put all those things together and kind of hope for the best and get some kind of delineation out of that for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, even more nuance, even more ability to get finer detail information if we're then looking at the relative position of planets. Right. Yeah. For sure. Um, why don't we tr- generate some delineations for this actually? So let's like provide some delineations and say, let's say we have a chart with Mars and Leo and Jupiter and Taurus. So one of the things, let's say this is a day chart, so we're also going to layer in the concept of sect. So if it's a day chart, that means Mars would be the most malefic planet and Jupiter would be the most benefic planet. And if Jupiter is in a square with Mars and there's some tension between those two planets, but Jupiter has the upper hand, um, Mars would have a tendency to want to indicate severing and separation in the part of the life that it's in. So let's say it's in the first house, so that might apply to the body and so or the person's character. So the person may be particularly impulsive or argumentative sometimes as like a character trait in their life. However, if Jupiter was in the uh, sign of Taurus in a superior square overcoming Mars, it would be able to um, calm Mars down a little bit and uh, take some of the edge off of Mars so that it's going to be a little bit less um, antagonistic from a character standpoint and a little less harmful from a bodily standpoint, and instead make that something that the native is able to sort of learn to overcome a little bit better or make it so that it never becomes the worst case scenario. Right. Yeah. So like someone could have knowledge of how to preserve their bodily form and then not get their, you know, hand chopped off at their job or something. Right. Like by or, wearing protective equipment or, you know. Yeah, or or even like um a scenario, let's say you get injured doing something like you're doing like uh, stunts on like a motorbike or something like that. And you like go off a big ramp because you're like doing daredevil stuff and crash, but then um, there just happens to be like a medic there who is able to like help you and and like get you to a hospital in times so that you don't die or otherwise suffer like a permanent injury from that. That would be like a really like concrete example of challenge comes up, but like positive things still intervenes to sort of like save the native. Right. Yep. So it's mitigating. It is ameliorating. It's doing some risk mitigation depending on what the situation is. Yeah. So that's like a literal, sort of dire sounding traditional interpretation of that. But another, let's say more of a psychological modern interpretation could be 
maybe with Mars in the first per- first house, the person has an impulse from a character standpoint to be more aggressive or more divisive or let's say to like blurt the first thing out that comes to mind and sometimes get themselves into trouble from some of the things that they say. But um, if Jupiter is there in the 10th house uh, overcoming Mars, maybe as the person grows up, it's something that they either learn to control a little bit better than they could or something that they learn how to challenge, uh, channel some of that energy into a positive direction that ends up being beneficial to them in some way. Like maybe they become mm-hmm. a stand-up comic that does, you know, like <laughs> um, roast battles, and so they go and they like insult like other comics, but they're able to like channel that and use it in a way that's positive for them or takes them in a good, successful career direction with Jupiter in the tenth house. Right, some kind of wisdom or learning something up there in the career life path, kind of helping helping them not be as inflammatory to themselves as they might be otherwise. Yeah, or one of the things that happens with astrology and with birth charts in particular is sometimes aspects in a person's chart are experienced as more challenging early on in a person's life because mm-hmm. they haven't learned how to deal with it or how to make those aspects work out for them or how to sort of manage them in some way earlier on. So some of those things that might get them into trouble more earlier in their life because they're not experienced with working with them later in their life as they get older, they may have an easier time of figuring out how to use those things or figuring Mm -hmm. out how to manage those energies in a little bit more constructive of a way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I certainly notice a difference speaking to people who are in more advanced decades of their life and that even if they just heard of astrology yesterday, they've already figured out a lot of the challenges in their chart. They've been working through them without knowing it. You know, um, yeah, that definitely makes a difference. And also, then you can bring in that idea of applying and separating. And then, mm. of course, we can get even more nuance as to okay, will this issue be something that is hopefully in the rearview mirror at some point in your life, or is it going to continue to be a challenge? Right, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in, in consultations, that was always. Something that that sometimes was a little annoying, where I always enjoyed it was always easier, let's say, to talk to somebody that's older because yeah. they've already like done so much of what their chart indicates that oftentimes you're just telling them things that they already know about their life, or they're able to confirm, like, yeah, that related to this, and mm-hmm. I went through a whole thing of like learning how to deal with that, and eventually overcame it, or or had mm-hmm. this experience from it, or what have you. Whereas a younger person. Um, so much hasn't happened to them yet in their life, and there may be some things indicated by the chart that are still coming up or other things that they're still learning how to get the best out of in terms of those placements and haven't quite figured out the exact um, uh, the exact formula yet. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's part of what happens with squares. Squares are tricky because they can be very powerful for good, especially if a benefic is involved and has the upper hand. Or conversely, they can sometimes be um, more difficult and have a tendency more towards challenging things if the malefic planet is the one that has the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, so I think that's good for squares. Are there anything else that we need to mention about? Squares, or is that pretty good? I think that is about it. Um, 
Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. Okay, cool. Um, well, let's move on to the. So, last thing, actually, I, I meant to mention in passing that just the square is kind of like the division into four because it connects the four-sided polygon. Um, yeah, so so square is like four. Um, numerologically, three is the trine because the trine is a triangle. And it connects, if you draw the entire polygon across the zodiac, it connects three different signs together that share the same element of earth, air, fire, and water. So the trine is viewed as the most positive or harmonious aspect. And I think part of it is the fact that it connects planets that are in two signs that share not just the same element of earth, air, fire, and water, but also the same gender. So it's like it's like doubling up on things that you share in common with somebody. Sort of like if you go to a, a party and you meet somebody that not only like went to the same high school, but also listens to the same music or has the same favorite band. And the more that you talk to that person, the more that you realize that you have in common, the more that it instantly creates some sort of bond or affinity between the two of you. Right. Yeah. So, um, in the theme of Monday, of course, the trine is associated with Jupiter, or in the domicile, the rulership scheme. And so, the trine is thought to be the most positive, but also kind of an affirming aspect that indicates um, friendship and accord and kind of an affinity between two planets, so that their energies are really getting along together and are complementary in some way, even if the trine is involving. Uh, malefic planets like Mars and Saturn, it's said to be indicating um, that planet still getting along with and doing something constructive with the other planet or working together with it in a positive way. Right. Yep. So even if it is a quote unquote malefic planet, um, is our technical term for it, if you put it in a certain environment, it can still act within or for your benefit. Right. Yeah, so the trine is said to be positive, easy, flowing, um, and it's also connected to the special role that the benefics have through these conditions known as bonification and maltreatment. And I have a whole uh, chapter on this in my book and a whole lecture on it in my course where I go into these seven special rules of bonification and maltreatment. But one of the special rules is the benefics have the special power to say yes to or to affirm what other planets want to signify in a chart. And one of the ways that they can do this is if the benefics are configured by a trine aspect to another planet in a chart, the benefic will say yes to whatever that planet wants to signify in the person's life, um, typically in a positive or affirming fashion. So for example, if um, Let's say Jupiter is trine the planet that rules the seventh house of marriage or the planet that signifies relationships, then it might say yes to relationships or yes, this person will be married at some point in time. Or if um, a benefic planet like Venus or Jupiter is trine to um, a planet connected with a person's 10th house or a career, it might indicate that yes, this person will have career success or this person will uh, find and achieve the career that they they want to pursue at some point in time and have success with that. Um, 
or sometimes things like fifth house and like children or the eleventh house and friends, all of the different topics in life where you have a range of possible manifestations where you know some people have those things or get particularly lucky with them. And on the other extreme end of the spectrum, some people don't have those things or are deprived of those things or somehow get unlucky when it comes to those. Um, the benefics through the trine will have a tendency to be able to affirm or say yes to those things as part of their special power when they're configured with a trine aspect. Right. Yep. So anytime I'm looking at some planet in a trine relationship with another, I'm thinking of that planet, its help or whatever it has to offer, then easily flowing down to help or offer something to that other planet in the trine relationship. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's additional considerations to that, like the benefics um, will do that better and more effectively when they're of the sect in favor, when you take the concept of sect into account, which makes it so that um, Jupiter is more positive in day charts and Venus is more positive in night charts, basically. So they have the greater power to exert that through the trine in that condition based on sect. Um, and then the other one is the distinction between right and left aspects also applies to the trines um, and also to a lesser extent the sextiles, but especially the, the trine and the square. So that if, if the benefic is in a trine and it is also earlier in zodiacal order, then it will have the upper hand over the planet that's later in zodiacal order and therefore a more powerful, uh, powerfully positive role to play in that relationship. Right. And and you know, even going a little further on that spectrum of manifestation, then we can almost get sometimes too much of a good thing, which can then be like in its own little weird way, deleterious to the person. But um, yeah, within that spectrum of things, there's always a lot of nuance. Sure, for sure. Um, so I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's something I spend a ton of time on in my course on Hellenistic astrology in my book, but it's worth mentioning at least in passing as additional factors that you could take into account and that you'd want to once you start getting into the more advanced interpretive principles. Um, all right, let's move on to the sextile. The sextile is um, a soft aspect. It's connecting together planets that are three signs apart, and it's connecting that six-sided polygon. A sextile is basically half of what a trine is, and that's often how it's treated um, in most traditional authors, that a sextile is kind of like good, but it's like half as good as as a trine, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seemed like something you kind of had to add in a little bit more effort to get the the good juju out of it, or something like that. I'm not sure if that that's real or not, but that's kind of how I've read about it. Yeah, it's just like a little extra positive thing um, that indicates a flowing relationship between two planets that's affirming and helpful, but it's not. Um, typically something that's majorly life-changing necessarily, or it's not a major overriding factor in the same way that a trine can be in like pushing things in an extremely positive direction. Right. And that's a good point too, because if I'm looking at a bunch of different factors, I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around a configuration and I see all these different interacting things. If one of those things is a sextile, I'm not gonna, that's not going to be at the top of my priority list of um, configurations that are really going to make or break the outcome of what I'm looking at. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm trying to think of what the prioritization would be if we were to like rank the most important aspect. It 
versus the least important. Definitely, though, sextile would be at like the bottom of the list in terms of important aspects. Yeah, just the power to like shift a situation or something like that. Certainly, a trine is going to be more powerful than a than a sextile. Yeah, right, for sure. Yeah. One other thing to mention about the sextile that might be useful as an interpretive principle is thinking about it in terms of friendship and getting, you know, just a hand from friends occasionally. Where, if you look at the houses. House houses scheme and the significations of the houses. And the first house is the self and is the native. Um, the sextile that goes upwards in the order of signs goes to the eleventh house, which is one of the places of friends and groups and alliances. Whereas the sextile, if you draw it downwards from the first house, goes to the third house, which is also one of the places of friendship, but it's also the place of siblings. So a sextile, in some ways, you could kind of make an analogy. It's like getting a little bit of help from like a sibling or a friend who's in a high place. So let's say you're like applying for a job and you have a friend or you have a sibling that works there that's able to like put in a good word for you. Now it's still not typically going to be the thing that makes or breaks it. Like you're still going to have to apply for the job and Get it for the most part on your own merits, and if you're like a terrible candidate, like it doesn't matter if you get like a good word in from like your your friend or your brother, or what have you, because they're not going to hire you if you're a terrible candidate. But if you're sort of applying, you're putting yourself your best face forward, and you also happen to have a referral from a friend or from a sibling, then it could be that little extra thing that gives you just a slight advantage and pushes you over the edge compared to the other candidates. Right, there's help around. Right, yeah. So that's kind of what a what a sextile is like. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so that kind of concludes the section, I think, on the quality of the aspects and giving some people some basic keywords and some basic things to think about when it comes to um, what an aspect might mean in a chart and some analogies to use or to sort of invoke in your mind. When you start looking at your chart and trying to understand some of the different aspects. Um, in this last aspect, this last section, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the different uses of aspects and where aspects come into play and how they get applied in different areas of astrology. Um, I think the primary area that they get applied and it's relevant that everyone's going to be the most familiar with or, or get the most use out of is within the context of natal astrology and Looking at aspects in a person's birth chart. And that's certainly what we focused on primarily today, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. We've gotten a lot of examples of how we kind of use aspects when we're trying to make decisions about a chart. Right. Um, however, you can also use aspects in different contexts. So it's not just something that's static in a birth chart, but you can also look at aspects in terms of um, things like. Let's say transits, for example, where you have your birth chart and then you look at where the planets are are located now in the sky or in the future and what sort of aspects they make to planets in your birth chart and how the astrology of now relates to the astrology of your birth chart itself. The the access point, the primary access point for that is through aspects. Right. So you can have, you know, a planet 
a transiting planet aspecting another transiting planet, or you can have a transiting planet aspecting a natal planet in your chart, in your birth chart. Right, exactly. So I'm planning a whole separate episode on transits, so we don't have to um, sort of dwell on that too much. However, there was one example I always use. It's one of my favorite examples for transits. I actually I use his his chart for a lot of stuff. Um, so, but what it is is um, the director and the filmmaker George Lucas, and who was the creator of Star Wars, and um, so he was the creator of Star Wars, of Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones trilogy, and a bunch of other things. So here is his birth chart, his timed birth chart, where he has um, 17 degrees of Taurus rising and the sun at 23 Taurus, Venus at 11 Taurus ruling the ascendant or the rising sign, and Mercury at 6 degrees of Taurus. Then he has Mars at 25 Cancer in the third house of short distance travel. So the story I always tell about George Lucas is that like early in his life he grew up and he wanted to be a race car driver and he liked to drive cars and he liked to drive cars really fast as a teenager and which is actually kind of funny with like Mars in the third house of short distance travel yeah. in his birth chart, right? That's totally perfect. Yeah, that's pretty perfect. Um here is a Again, showing that like houses diagram just to show you I'm not like making that up. That in the third house, short trips, which one of the things that falls under that is like driving your car around your neighborhood or locally, as opposed to the ninth house, which is like foreign travel and like getting in a plane and flying to a different country. Right. Yep. Yeah. So he liked driving cars. Um, but he on this one day when he was a teenager, he was like racing cars and he got in this terrible car accident where another car <clears throat> slammed into his and his car was like thrown into a tree and he was ejected from the car um, and terribly injured, but thankfully ejected from the car before it smashed into a tree and like crumpled like a like a soda can or something like that. And he ended up in the hospital for several weeks, um, but he was sort of like miraculously saved at that time. Mm -hmm. And after that point, he never wanted to um, race cars again. And he instead decided to go to college and ended up studying filmmaking. And then the rest is history because then he became right. the director of like hmm. Star Wars and Indiana Jones and everything else. But it all Came back to this one pivotal day where he had this like terrible car accident, right? Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So then, so, as far as his chart, yeah. So let me pull up the what I I've always found fascinating about this story was his transits for the day that he got in this car accident. Where, um, if you look at where the planets were in the sky on the day that he got in this accident. They actually lined up really well with, in a really interesting way, at least, um, with his birth chart. So his chart's in the middle here. And remember, he has Taurus rising. So his ascendant is in Taurus. And Venus is the ruler of Taurus. So that means 
Venus rules his ascendant and his first house of self and body, and it makes it what some modern astrologers call the ruler of the chart, or what ancient astrologers would call the helmsman or like the captain of the ship, would be his Venus placement. And on the day that he got in this terrible car accident, transiting Mars in the sky came right up to 10 and 11 degrees of Taurus and conjoined his or, or went to the exact same place and formed a conjunction with Venus in his birth chart. So we would call that like a transiting conjunction where Mars occupied the same degree of the zodiac as where Venus was in his birth chart. So that's, that's so interesting. So that's kind of a negative indication because it's like a, a difficult or malefic planet that's coming up to the planet that's representing his first house of his body and his physical vitality. And it's also taking place in his first whole sign house or in his rising sign, which is the first house of self and body and mind. Yeah. And then also Venus in the third, which is kind of interesting too. But yeah, that's yeah. So right so there. I, I think that's the counterbalancing positive indication was it wasn't just transiting Mars conjoining his Venus, but also on, you know, strikingly the same day, basically, transiting Venus came up to 24 and 25 degrees of Cancer, which is where Mars was located in his birth chart at 25 degrees of Cancer in the third whole sign house. So this is kind of like a positive counterbalancing influence of a positive benefic transit over his third house Mars, which I, I've always interpreted as this sort of positive counterbalancing thing of even though he was in this terrible car accident, he was kind of like thrown from the car and miraculously saved is another way that you can look at it. Yeah, yeah, that is very, very interesting. So that's a transiting conjunction of Mars on top of Venus. Yeah. Mars first. on top of Venus and Venus on top of Mars. Mm, so it's like a palindrome. It's like Taco Cat or Radar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've been searching for for years, and some people have heard me mention this in the forecast episodes. Yeah. Like a name a name for that where you get um a, a, like a double whammy is what one friend of mine was calling it. Uh, Kent by <laughs> for years. I'm looking for a little bit something a little bit more more. I don't know has a different ring to it than double whammy, but. <laughs> right. Right, it's um, a little, it's a little too um, idiom. It's a little too much of an idiom. Right. Um, yeah. There were some interesting um, ideas that were put forward or, or different proposals, but I'm forgetting what some of them are at this point. Mm. But I'll, I'll try and mention them or write them down before I do the transit episode sometime soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so that's an example of how aspects are also used to study transits and used in order to study timing. And it happens both through when aspects go exact from where they are in the sky to where they were in a person's birth chart, but also even aspects when they move into a new sign in the sky, it means they're also going to start forming a new aspect in a person's birth chart based on the sign-based aspects. And that exactly. can be very relevant as well. Mm -hmm, exactly. So think things like the Saturn return, for example, when you are between the ages of 27 and 30, Saturn, which takes about 28 years to go around the zodiac, will eventually return back to its natal sign where it was in your birth chart, and that's the beginning of the Saturn return. And then eventually when the conjunction goes exact, that's the exact Saturn return. And then eventually when Saturn leaves that sign, that's the end of the Saturn return by, by sign. Right. 
So and a, sign- a good demonstration of sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects and how they all matter. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually the way if if somebody's questioning how sign-based aspects can work or be possible, that's what I usually recommend them to check out is that you can actually see it working in practice if you follow mm-hmm. your transits that the transit begins as soon as the transiting planet moves into a, a sign-based aspect it gets it peaks in intensity and importance and relevance when the exact degree based aspect happens but then it, it eventually doesn't end until the sign based aspect uh, departs and is over right yeah so that's another area you can use aspects is within the context of transits um, you can also look at aspects within the context of synastry which is the ancient method of doing relationship astrology where you compare you take two charts and you overlay them on top of each other in order to see where two planet two people's planets fall relative to one one another and what that says about um, describing how they relate to each other basically in their relationship mm-hmm. and whether it's uh, you know whether they have more tense aspects or whether they have more flowing aspects or what have mm-hmm. you can be used to describe um, do basic relationship analysis right. Yeah, are there any like famous celebrity examples that you do you think of mm-hmm. when it comes to like synastry? You know, I have not gotten too much into the synastry. Um, mm-hmm. I just know that people use tighter orbs, tend to look for conjunctions, and just very tight orbs of aspects between two charts. That's all I really know about. But I, I don't really practice too much of it myself. Mm, okay. Yeah. I just have that um, time. We need we need more hours in the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like that's one of the things about astrology is it's such a vast field that yeah. nobody can nobody can specialize in every different part, and it's going to mm-hmm. have like a little familiar familiarity with different areas. But there's some it's so vast that it's impossible to study and master everything. So sometimes what you got to do is mm-hmm. kind of pick pick a piece that you really want to focus on and then specialize in that. Do you have any uh, any good celebrity sinister charts? Any good Brangelina like astrological versions? <laughs> oh yeah, that, well, I mean that is a good one, Brad and Angelina. That's more of a, like a two thousands one. Like a more recent mm. one I was thinking of is like Machine Gun Kelly and uh, and uh, I'm spacing out on her oh. name. Why am I? Uh, oh no, I was thinking about an example yeah, you from, used with an enemy. Eminem. Um, I mean that would actually be really funny to look at because <laughs> well, Machine Gun Kelly that was his Saturn return when he. Um, put out the diss track against Eminem, right. and then Eminem responded, and it was actually a very funny Saturn Return story. I may have mentioned it That's as what one I'm of my thinking of. Saturn and Capricorn retrospective mm-hmm. Saturn Return stories last December. Um, um, yeah, but no, I was thinking of Eminem's current girlfriend, who's actually an astrologer. Um, and I know oh. the movie that she's- Megan Fox? Yeah, Megan Fox, sorry. Oh yeah, good old resident celebrity person who is sympathetic to astrologers, Megan Fox. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> well, yeah, well, she's an actual like astrologer, and I think she was the one that recently, not leaked, but like got let us know what Machine Gun Kelly's rising sign is, which was pretty oh, cool, actually. That's so I was fantastic. thinking of um, Jennifer's Body, which is like a great movie mm. that's become like a cult classic. Um, when I was trying to think of what her name was just now, mm-hmm. so you know, sometimes people look at things like that, like like celebrity sinistry, as yeah. a fun thing or interesting thing that you can do sometimes mm-hmm. as a public example. But other times, people look at sinistry for things like you know their own relationships and how they get along mm-hmm. with different people. And sometimes you can learn things about comparing past relationships that you've had and seeing how 
some of the closest aspects mm-hmm. between you and somebody else manifested for better or worse. Well, um, I've dabbled, unfortunately. You've dabbled. Okay, okay. Yeah, when <laughs> you're you when you were saying you hadn't done sinistry, I was a little skeptical well, I mean, because not professionally, yeah. but no, of okay. course we've all done the the postmortems of our our past relationships. That's like, why else do you become an astrologer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's one of the best ways to learn about yeah. aspects is by doing comparisons like that. Or sinistry does not have to be restricted to romantic relationships, no. but can also be applied to. Uh, family relationships, like seeing how your chart relates to your parents' chart or your siblings' chart or other relatives, to um, you know bosses and coworkers, to yeah. friends and other people that you meet during the course of your life, because that's one of the fascinating things about astrology is everyone's got a birth chart and mm-hmm. your birth chart is interacting with other people's charts in different ways, and the aspects are the primary ways of characterizing those interactions and those relationships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very, very, very helpful. I like, I like just like to look at Mercury sometimes and make sure there's no, or if there is an aspect, you know, just making sure my communication, I guess a little bit more seriously, I, I will sometimes glance at, um, or I'll, I'll think to myself in my mind what my Mercury is and how I communicate versus if I'm thinking about someone else's Mercury and how they communicate and uh, and making sure that I don't, you know, antagonize someone unwittingly. Uh, but I use it for those purposes as well. Yeah, for sure. Mercury's yeah. Mercury aspects are good for communication, mm-hmm. and Sun and Moon aspects can be good for um, emotional connections and how two people just relate in terms of their internal identities to each other, right. and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, the last thing where aspects comes up. Most frequently is in mundane astrology, which is just, you know, what are the current aspects that are in the sky today? And, um, you know, usually in terms of intro astrology, people hear about and, and learn about things like Mercury retrograde and things like that initially, which is a type of like mundane astrology. It's just Mercury's retrograde right now and things are kind of going haywire in different people's lives or in some areas of the world. But um, one of the things that's relevant is like when Mercury went retrograde this time, what aspects was it making? And then how does that change or characterize the nature of the Mercury retrograde or alter it based on which planets it's aspecting? So, one of the things we talked about in the forecast episode that we recorded like a week ago in late September was that Mercury would station retrograde squaring Pluto. And we started talking about the significations of the Pluto of Pluto and like how it has this like digging and unearthing quality and this investigative quality. And it's been really funny over the past few days to see all of these stories coming out in the news about disclosures of different things, where um one of them was like there was this huge um media disclosure of like offshore um financial dealings of different uh, people around the world and how this started being leaked um, in the media very early in the course of the retrograde through like investigative reporting. Or um, elsewhere, there was like a Facebook um, staffer who sort of defected from sta- Facebook and decided to like disclose a bunch of secrets um, with Facebook. And then the same day, Facebook and Instagram and a bunch of other things like went down. Uh, for a little while, I think yesterday. Did you experience that? I did, but I did not hear that juicy story about what well, happened before. 
Holy I, I, I mean, it might actually be a little bit. I was wondering if it was a little bit related because it was happening like a little close together where the, it was like the same day that yeah. this like w- whistleblower comes forward and leaks a bunch of Facebook like documents and stuff. Like Facebook and Instagram suddenly go out as a as a sort of like a power outage type thing and sort of drew some of the attention away from that. I don't want to get like too conspiracy theory here, but it was a little, oh, little I weird. know, but boy, Pluto certainly likes to cover stuff up, doesn't it? Though it, it likes yeah. to, well, that, that, that's <laughs> or a good uncover. Point. It goes both ways, covering and uncovering. No, that's a really good point. That just mm-hmm. as much as Pluto can sometimes uncover and like dig up secrets and and indicate. People that have that drive to unearth secrets, sometimes it can also be that drive to like bury secrets at the same as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So this all sounds very, very appropriate for this Mercury retrograde, be having that aspect from. So it's basically these different, anytime we have a configuration, whether it's a lunar configuration, a lunation, like a new moon, a full moon, any of these things, a station direct, a station retrograde, any of the uh, aspects coming in are piping in some kind of type of flavor or plot or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the big aspect that we've talked a lot this year on the forecast in the in the forecast episodes, like the year ahead forecast, is the square between Saturn, the two outer planets, Saturn and Uranus, and the sort of like tension between those where Saturn can be more of like a, a traditional planet and more of a conservative planet and more about like setting boundaries and foundations and things like that. Whereas Uranus in many ways can be the opposite, where it's more about like freedom and liberation and the destabilizing of the old order mm-hmm. and um revolution and things like that. And so this year, with having Saturn squaring Uranus. We have this fundamental tension set up between these two planets um, that are kind of uh, going in different directions in some ways, or at least have different meanings, which then manifests in some striking ways as a result of that. Right. Yeah. So you've already got just two very juxtaposed uh, buckets of of meaning and symbolism, and then you put them into a square configuration, which of itself has some of this tension. And so you've almost got like two layers here of like tension. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there can be, it's like if it was a trine aspect and it was more flowing, then it's like you get those two planets that have very different energies kind of getting along and finding ways to complement each other, which leads to like innovation. <laughs> yeah. Like the innovative like tendency mm-hmm. of Uranus like builds on top of the traditional, like the foundation building of Saturn. Um, so you get like a, a sudden innovation that's like graceful and goes smoothly. Whereas here with the square, we have, um, you know, sudden changes and destabilizations that go much less smoothly, so to speak. Well, yeah, and just even putting it one final way is just like if you kind of imagine it in your mind, if you've got two people talking and those two people are Saturn and Uranus and they're having all kinds of difficult discussions, if there's a moderator like that square, if the moderator is Mars versus if it's a trine and that moderator is Jupiter, that's going to be a different, <laughs> a different outcome for sure. Right. Yeah, so I remember. Um, so here's just an example of like the exact square uh, that will happen in December. I think that, that'll be the second exact square between Saturn and Uranus, or maybe it's the third, uh, where Saturn will be at 11 degrees third. of. A, it is the third. Okay, Saturn will be at 11 degrees of Aquarius, and Uranus will be at 11 degrees of Taurus. So that'll be the exact square. And in 
um, you know, mundane astrology, sometimes one of the things coming up here is that the planets will make, because of their retrograde cycles, will make three aspects or sometimes more, depending on um, you know, how fast they're moving and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was trying to think in my mind if it was three or if it was more than that, because I know they've both been kind of back and forth, but there's been at least two. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's really useful um, that I've been enjoying over the past year or two is using um, for mundane astrology that I show sometimes in the forecast episodes, um, the website Archetypal Explorer, because it takes the exact aspects between planets and it puts them on a graph mm-hmm. and it shows when the aspect goes exact versus when it moves away. And that's a really good way to visualize, especially in mundane astrology or in transits, the sort of longer term um, connections between planets and what the how to vi- sort of visualize the exact aspects versus when planets are still not too far away, but are not as close as the exact aspect. Right. Yeah, I like the visualization and just it it makes what is a really practical thing to understand about astrology very visual in that just because you have that exact day where that uh, degree-based aspect is perfect, it doesn't mean that that's the only day that you should pay attention to. Right. So here's a example, for example, from of the Saturn-Uranus squares this year that um, Kyle from ArchetypalExplorer.com put together for me, where the first exact Saturn-Uranus square was on February 17th at seven degrees of Aquarius to seven degrees of Taurus, and that's like the peak in intensity. But then they start moving away from each other and start getting distance, so the aspect kind of drops off a little bit. But then they retrograded back and they came back into an exact aspect on June 14th from 13 Aquarius to 13 Taurus. Um, that one was kind of tricky. One that was one of the ones where shortly after that there was like that um, condo building that collapsed in I think it was in Florida or something like that, which was a very vivid, um, very literal manifestation of of the symbolism of the Saturn Uranus square. Right. So then the two after that start moving away from each other and start getting quite a bit of distance in terms of the orb of distance between them, and the graph drops sort of drops by uh, late September, early October, which is actually where we're at now. But then it starts steeply climbing again after that, until eventually you get to the third exact aspect when Saturn will be at eleven degrees of Aquarius to Uranus at eleven Taurus on December twenty fourth. Uh, which is kind of interesting. That's like right on, right around Christmas. Another let the good times roll moment. Yeah, fun holidays. Yeah, on the holidays. <laughs> right. So that's another way that you can sort of visualize, and that you might visualize um, exact aspects versus aspects that are um, moving moving together, that are applying or separating, is in these kind of like waves of intensity, basically mm-hmm. in some sense. Yep. Yeah. So thanks to Kyle for that from Archetypal Explorer. And yeah, I think that's the other, that's that's basically it in terms of the use of aspects in those four major areas. Um let's see, one other area where aspects come up was a whole other episode that I did previously on aspect patterns. And normally aspects are when there's just two planets involved for the most part. Like one one planet is aspecting another, 
and the aspect is applying or separating or is exact or is mm-hmm. sign-based or degree-based, um, when you start throwing in more than two planets, when you have three or more planets that are aspecting each other in some way, that's usually what's referred to as an aspect pattern. Mm-hmm. And there's different types of patterns that you can look at when you start having um, multiple planets aspecting each other at the same time. Right. So like a T-square, a mystical rectangle, grand trine. Um, does Yod count? Is a Yod one of those? Yeah, Yod is an aspect um, pattern. Um, kite. Um, I'm trying to think of the other ones. But yeah, all, diff- Stellus, all just uh, stellium. stellium. Right. Yeah, so... Um, the episode I did that I did an episode on that with Carol Taylor, I think last year in episode two sixty six. So if people Google aspect patterns in astrology, you'll see a whole episode that I did on that. Yeah, I've actually thought about T squares a lot because I've tried to to parse out you know if I can think about it in terms of traditional aspects and how that interpretation relates to kind of the more aspect patterny um, idea that if you have a T square which is made up of an opposition. Uh, between two planets and then a third planet that's making a square between the two opposing ones. If you have that T-square, it's kind of thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that that third planet that's in square to both of the other two is kind of like a release point for that energy. And Mm. I mean, this is my own opinion, but if you're thinking about it in terms of um, traditional square in superior, inferior, having that kind of earlier in zodiacal order, upper hand planet versus further on planet, um, you can almost come up with a similar story that 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 middle planet does have to make a change or adjust something, do the square thing, you know, to to move on to do the next square with its its second planet that it's going to do a square with. So yeah, it's really interesting, I think, to to think of really try to think about that. Like, why do these aspect patterns mean what they do? Uh, yeah, thinking about the the concepts behind it a little bit, and I don't know if modern astrologers like think about the, them in that way, or if they kind of have their own other process for thinking about aspect patterns. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think some of that modern stuff about aspect pattern theory can be integrated really well, like you were saying, with some mm-hmm. of the traditional concepts, because the traditional concepts of right versus left, or sect, or bonification and maltreatment just help add additional nuance into some of right. the things that that modern astrologers are already doing with some of those things like mm-hmm. here I just found a diagram that Paula had made me of the T square aspect pattern which is where you have like two planets that are in opposition and then both of them are squaring simultaneously a third planet mm-hmm. so that so that was is that one of the ones you were just describing that's exactly what I was just talking about so yep this is exactly what I was I was trying to describe with my words is that you know in this example we've got the sun who's in the upper hand because it's earlier in zodiacal order uh, over Mars so whatever that outcome is granted now I'm assuming that the aspects will you know happen in this order chronologically which we do not know um, but that outcome then maybe whatever that sun tells mars to do mars will then it'll have a downstream effect into how that affects that square with jupiter that's kind of how i think about it um but yeah it's really nice to have the visual yeah totally so there's a t square aspect pattern um here's a a grand square or sometimes called a grand cross where you have um, four planets where two of them in opposition, and then those two planets in opposition are squaring two other planets, which are themselves in opposition, which creates 
a big square across the entire chart. Yeah, it looks like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's good times. Um, or a grand trine, which is when you have three planets that are all in a trine with each other to create a big triangle pattern across the chart. A kite pattern is when you have a grand trine, and then one a, a fourth planet that's in opposition to one of the planets that are in trine while simultaneously being in a sextile to two other planets. Yeah, basically, aspect patterns is where things start getting complicated, where you're seeing broader relationships and um, geometrical patterns that are being inscribed on the chart that may say something more general about different dynamics in a person's life and chart. Mm -hmm. Yep, it gets complicated, but very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so people can listen to episode uh, 266 titled Aspect Patterns in Astrology for more about that. Um, but I think that's pretty much it when it comes to this little introduction yeah. to the concept of aspects in astrology. Um, is there anything that it. we forgot to mention or, or meant to mention but but didn't? I bet there is because it's Mercury retrograde right now, so I bet there is. But I can't think of anything right now. Um, I think we pretty much covered as much as people need to get a super good idea about what aspects are about and that there's this whole underlying concept behind them. Um, we didn't just have people make up a square and a triangle, and then that was it. So there's certainly a lot to consider. And it just really shows, too, how something so simple and something so foundational, um, maybe not simple, but foundational is a better word, you can get so much information from that just by itself. So right. I think that's a really valuable lesson. Yeah. And it's a really crucial next building block, because I think most people get into astrology and they know something about zodiac signs. And then the next thing you learn is about the planets and that there's more than just your sun sign, but that there can be other planets besides the sun, like your moon sign or your rising sign. Mm -hmm. And then the, the next one after that really is aspects because that's when you start layering in much more complicated stuff. But it starts with some very basic principles of like, you know, what happens when two planets are together in the same sign and how do they rub off on each other versus what, ha what happens when two planets are in the opposite sign and the sort of tension that that creates in the chart. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So um, this was just a basic introduction. Uh, we're going to be putting together, uh, like I said, the Astrology Podcast Intro to Astrology course, which is going to be one of the lectures in. And I'm hoping to launch that later this month in the month of October. So people can yes. check that out at theastrologyschool.com. Um, I also have a book where I wrote a lot more about all of this. There's a whole chapter on aspects and a chapter on the bonification and maltreatment conditions called Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune, where I spent 10 years like reconstructing ancient astrology and wrote a whole book about it, where you can read about where aspects come from and why we use them and how they actually work in practice with over 100 example charts. And the book, uh, is used in my online course on Hellenistic astrology, where I have over a hundred hours of video lectures where I use a lot of example charts and I break down some of these concepts like the aspect doctrine in much more detail, um, going through the ancient stuff, but then also showing how it applies to charts. Um, and you do consultations, you do a weekly or or is it bi-weekly live Instagram uh, discussion. And have other offerings as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So your book is great. Everybody buy the book, found at fine bookstores everywhere and Amazon. 
Um, I have my website, aligninglightastrology.com. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook uh, is Aligning Light Astrology. Um, you can book consults with me. You can book uh, tutoring with me, whatever works. I do a live offering uh, first and third Tuesday of every month on Instagram, just an hour to talk about astrology, to ask questions. If you have astrology questions, you can come to me there. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I'm just bebopping around the internet uh, working on this intro course. And if you need anything else, if it's not clear, email me. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so aligninglightastrology.com. And mm -hmm. then you'll be helping with, and, and people can get some hands on help, uh, hopefully, in this course that we're creating. And it should be a lot of fun. I'm excited to launch it uh, this month, and and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. It's always good to have you on the podcast. And um, yeah, I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Let us know if you have any questions in the comments below on YouTube. Please be sure to like this video, or if you're watching my videos and haven't subscribed yet, please be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel because it really helps. Um, if you want to get early access to new episodes, then check out our page on patreon.com slash the astrology podcast. And otherwise, that's it for this episode. So we'll see you again next time. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrology podcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code AstroPodcast15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com.
And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.